Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. During the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speaker's secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi, everybody. During this new episode of Founder Series, we are sitting down with Kelly Herring, CTO and co-founder at Charm Industrial. Charm Industrial, which is one of the fastest growing carbon removal technology companies, is on a mission to return the atmosphere to 280 ppm CO2. To do this, they are taking cellulosic biomass, which already captures 100% gigaton CO2 per year, and is turning it into a bio oil before injecting it underground to store it for millennia. I was excited to speak with Kelly, a brown educated mechanical engineer who is not only passionate about building things, but also about women's studies and getting more women involved in STEM science, technology, engineering, and math. Prior to Charm Industrial, Kelly designed satellites at Planet, a leading provider in global satellite imagery, and worked as a rocket designer at Astra, both of which gave her invaluable experience in iterative design and bringing tech to market quickly. In this episode, we will learn more about Charm's unique process for capturing carbon and storing it permanently where they sit in the current carbon offset market and who their big buyers are. Together, we will also cover how the market is ensuring CO2 offsets are certified or insured. 
and what the real impact urban offsetting could or should have in the fight against climate change. We will also go deeper into charm and how they select the biomass they use for their processes, where they store their carbon and their business model. During the second part of the talk, Kelly will share her thoughts on the warlike effort needed to channel the climate crisis, as well as what she has learned from her co-founders during Charm's fundraising journey. Finally, she will share a secret and tips for founders trying to maintain a healthy work-life balance. Kelly, welcome to the show. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy and excited to have you here with us uh, today. I believe it's going to be a, a great opportunity to hear your story uh, and learn more about what you guys are up to with uh, Charm Industrial. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much and thanks for having me. First question, as uh, usual, you know, before, the, before we start, can you give us a, a 30 second introduction about uh, Charm Industrial? Sure. Um, so Charm Industrial, um, basically our mission is to reduce the global CO2 concentrations to 280 parts per million CO2. And we've developed currently two pathways to do that. And so it starts with, we produce a bio oil, which comes from um, some amount of plant matter. So we process plant matter in a machine that we've built, which then produces bio oil. And that bio oil then can be used for two purposes. One is a carbon removal pathway. So that's actually taking that bio oil and pumping it back underground, which is something that we've developed and invented over the last few years. And then the other pathway, we can actually gasify it through another machine that we've designed um, into uh, syngas, which is a mixture of gases that can be used to decarbonize heavy industry. And that's specifically targeting um, steel production right now. And so Charm is basically developing these technical pathways to, to try to reduce global CO2 concentrations. That's super exciting. So let's start from the from the top. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about you know your personal story, uh, background? What are you passionate about? I know that you love to uh, to build charm industrial, and that's uh, probably taking a lot of uh, a lot of your time. Uh, but what makes you feel like inspired or like uh, your best self? Uh, as I always ask, uh, who's Kelly? Yeah, awesome. Yeah. So um, let's see. My background. I grew up in New Jersey. Um, and then went to school for mechanical engineering and that's where i really i went to school in at brown in rhode island um and what's really cool about brown is that it has a very like liberal liberal arts degree where you can both be in the sciences and engineering and also be in kind of a mixed liberal arts environment and so that really allowed me to kind of uh take to both of my passions so i was able to develop a lot about mechanical engineering which was really driven from my desire to just like build things and understand how humans interact with like the things in our environment and how like as a human myself and an engineer, I could actually impact that environment. And then um, on top of that, I was always really interested in um, women's studies and specifically how you get women into um, like technical and science fields as someone who's obviously been in the industry for a few years. Um, or I guess more than a few years at this point, um, young at heart, I guess. <laughs> the, um, the, it's been a really eye-opening experience to just be a woman in the industry and how um, we can create environments for people to really feel comfortable and be, them, be their best selves and produce some really incredible things from a diverse um, background and, um, or gender or whatever it may be. And so um, I've been really excited about figuring out ways to get more women to STEM and to in, like also really inspire others 
um, younger people in in science and in climate specifically now. So those are some of the things that I'm I'm inspired by. And then also um, on my free time, I guess my partner and I do a lot of like immersive art type of things. So we enjoy kind of making experiences and um, kind of bringing a little bit of weirdness to the world. So that's exciting. Can you give us uh, maybe one example of uh, of this kind of immersion that you that you do? Yeah, sure. So we built. Um, let's see. We went to Disneyland uh, a few years back, and we when you stay late, right, you can see the water. Um, I think it's like it's either Fantasia or they do some different things. But basically, they like create these water screens out of um, this like complex engineered water system that they have at Disney World. And they project onto them, and so we wanted to do this for an event, and so we actually created one in the middle of a river um, with a raft and some pumps and things like that, and we projected on um, from behind, and so you can actually, if you imagine at night, all of a sudden the river kind of like comes alive. And then you see like projections of things like coming out of the river and things like that. So we kind of brought that to that event in a natural way because we we're all camping. But like all of a sudden you would just see this projection of water come out of the river nearby. This is pretty exciting. Thank you for sharing. Uh, yeah. So out of this uh, old story, um, and you mentioned that uh, you're in, in the, the tech industry uh, prior to being in the climate tech industry, I would say. Uh, out of the, all of those like work and, and life experience prior to the launch of Charm uh, Industrial, what did you learn along the way that in a way you would not have if you had a different journey? Um, I mean, and that in maybe gave you a niche uh, today to, to, to start uh, Charm Industrial? Yeah, I definitely think that my experiences leading up once I left college um, were really impactful in, in starting Charm. So. I left college, I was working on a CubeSat project in college that's like building a small satellite about the size of actually like a tissue box. So the, the satellite was actually used to encourage people to get interested in space. So it had these blinking lights on it that you could actually see from the ground um, with the naked eye. And so I was working on CubeSats and then I actually got connected with someone who was doing commercial CubeSats in San Francisco trying to do that for good and like basically create a, a base map of the entire earth every day using these small satellites that I would had been working on for years in college um, and then use those for for good to count trees to like to see human effects on the earth on the human time scales as opposed to seeing them on um, for like year long time scales or some of the other data sets. So, I started there as an intern and then we basically had to uh, we were developing these satellites in like a rapid iterative way and I got to really see that process from end to end and build these satellites and grow the team and so we saw the team grow from like 20 to hundreds of people and then um, got the opportunity and then eventually left there after like gathering all that stuff about how you take this um, really slow moving industry which is space and go into this like new space industry so moving it into this rapid iterative like startup world that um, the satellites don't have to cost millions of dollars they don't have to take years to make we can actually like make them much more cost efficient much quicker and then we were just like churning out satellite after satellite because they were small and modular and so then i went to a company called astra for about a little over a year where we were doing the same thing for rockets so instead of building these giant rockets we were building smaller modular rockets, about 40 feet tall, roughly. 
um, to take up these CubeSats. So that was kind of the connecting uh, thing for me. So while I wasn't designing parts for these little things and they were much bigger, in, at least in the way that I had experienced design before, they still had that approach of like, how do you do it quickly um, using off the shelf components, using things that don't have to go through this like crazy rigor of, um, of like a design process because of the fact that they were built so quickly, so disposably almost um, because they were so small and, and quick to be made. So when it came to starting Charm, and uh, my co-founders reached out to, to me about that process. And it was really a good opportunity to go back to this mission-driven organization. Planet was that, right? The Planet had this like yeah. background in trying to do good with data. Um, Astro was super cool in the fact that I got to design and build the rocket in a year. Um, but it didn't, it, the, its mission was to help, help get pl uh, satellites to, the sp to space, right? And then when I got a chance to start Charm, it was like, you get to actually work on something that was so critically important for for climate, and so bringing all of that experience from that modular design and build allows us to now look at the chemical industry, look at some of these industries that have been around for a bit but they haven't really gotten a lot of traction, and try to understand where the gaps were and how we can use um, iterative design to learn things very quickly and not fall into similar traps. And then also just like bring technology to market much quicker. And so that's, that's kind of the transition for me. And it's been exciting to deploy those skills. So in all of this, and, and it sounds that you, you mentioned that uh, this for good, uh, that uh, the planet <clears throat> in a way was, uh, you know, was carrying as a, as a mission uh, behind the, the, just uh, the fact of, uh, I mean, just the fact of building a satellite. Uh, what was your driver to jump into the, the climate tech uh, industry? Any specific aha moment that you can recall or would define as such? Or is it a succession? Or what has been like this little like ignite moment or, you know, where you say, okay, this is where I want to put my, uh, my entire life and, and soul for now for the next five, 10 years? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, we're probably one of the first like age group or generation that has really grown up seeing or hearing about climate change as a concept from like, I think I first heard about it in second grade. We had someone come in and basically tell us that um, be, all of this, like our cities would be underwater because like well, the sea level rise and all this stuff. And I remember it being absolutely terrifying and like debilitating almost um, from that perspective, probably could have been worded better for a second grader, but um, <laughs> We, yeah, we're one of the first generations who have really heard about it as a, as a fundamental problem. And going throughout our lives, we also haven't seen much action on the part of our government representatives. Like we've, we've seen kind of these big concepts um, at these different like global events, right? Where we want to like keep the, um, the temperature rise below one and a half or two degrees Celsius and all those things. But I hadn't really ever seen from an engineering perspective, the opportunity to get into that space, especially as a mechanical engineer. A lot of the time you hear chemical engineering as like this way to work on fuels or to work on green energy. You don't really hear about it as like the mechanical engineer can do something there. And so I think when the concept was brought up is like, could you support in the design of this kind of new way of thinking about chemical plants and how do we build 
hardware, like how do we like take atoms and turn them into things that help the planet? All of a sudden it like clicked for me that as a mechanical engineer, I actually have something to contribute beyond, it didn't have to be limited by chemistry and pyrolysis, which is the kind of the backbone chemical process of um, charm industrial has been around since the eighties. And that's not something that like I needed to be an expert in to contribute to the the production of this effectively and so now all of a sudden i was like oh i can see how my skills are directly like impactful and that debilitating feeling of like you can't do anything because you didn't pick the right field or you didn't have the right skill set is now something where i'm like i need more mechanical engineers how many mechanical engineers can i hire in a given amount of time to just like make to make stuff and to design and build and like partner with the chemical the chemists or partner with other types of engineers to just like push things forward. So out of uh, curiosity, because I mean, you, uh, you're based in, uh, in Silicon Valley, San Francisco. And uh, so do you see that some, you know, uh, engineers uh, like you or software engineers or, um, you know, may maybe like business people from the traditional tech ecosystem uh, trying to move into the climate tech or want to do something? Do you see like a movement there or is more like something that uh, here and there happens, but uh, most of the other people are focused on, on building different solutions right now? Yeah, I definitely have seen some movement into it. Um, not necessarily in the hardware space, though. I think that there's a certain barrier um, that we've been finding to people coming into hardware because of the natural thought that like they can't contribute in certain ways. Um, and the people in the hardware space, I think maybe don't, I think are still experiencing that thing I just talked about, which is like, where are my skills directly conferable, uh, transferable into um, something. So I've seen a lot of like hardware people in the like autonomous vehicles of the world or in the like space, space industry or those types of things and less in moving into climate tech whereas i've seen a lot of software people and business people who are excited about it start to go into it but then only see themselves in a software solution so they're working a lot on how do you trade carbon offsets how do you value them how do you um like what's the sorry i'm losing my train of thought here Um, how do you, yeah, so how do you no trade worries. carbon stuff? How do you value them? How do you measure them? How do you uh, make things slightly more efficient from a software perspective and less from a like atoms, like actually building stuff that or contributing on a software level or on a business level to things that could actually re remove CO2 from the atmosphere? So before we, uh, we start going into detail of uh, Charm Industrial, uh, we'd like to, to zoom out. Uh, and as I was mentioning uh, prior to the interview, I'd like to kind of understand like the overall context that uh, Charm is navigating on. I mean, on one side, you have the biomass agricultural waste landscape that you guys are valorizing in a way. Uh, on the other side, you have the, the carbon offset market. Um, and we always like want to know, dig a little bit more uh, onto the, the, the carbon offset uh, landscape. We'd love to get your overview of it. Um, I mean, what are the challenges that you can see and, and opportunities uh, in the market? I mean, who are the, the main players that you uh, came across? Um, maybe the main buyer. Uh, and I saw that your buyers are uh, quite well known. So that's uh, exciting to see that uh, uh, those type of companies are moving into the into the market. Um, 
how efficient is that that market? Do you see any like blocking point to go mainstream in a way? Uh, I believe there's two questions here. Yeah, definitely. All right, so I guess the first of the two in terms of where we are in that market and kind of how we entered that. So initially we were looking at kind of a, a BEX solution and BEX is bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. Um, when Charm started, we were going from biomass all the way to hydrogen. We were like, all right, we're going to target this like hydrogen market, which is growing, but very established, right? Like we knew that um, there is a known buyer of hydrogen. They like have specific load needs. And it was about how we were going to get our tech into a space where it could like produce at those levels in renewable ways. Um, as we started to shift kind of terms, um, eventual pathway that we decided to choose, we moved a little bit away from the hydrogen market because um, a like producing biomass for hydrogen, it just creates not as pure of a hydrogen stream, which is like so important to the hydrogen market. So we actually were like, all right, well, maybe we could actually um, target the syngas market, which is a mixture of gases and reduce a lot of the cost of the cleanup stages required just for hydrogen. So there's still hydrogen in our syngas, but we don't have to make pure hydrogen from it. And could we become value there? And so then we access this other market, which is heavy industry um, and like they and decarbonizing that generally. However, that also requires um, a very large throughput of syngas, right? So what you have to do then is start 10 years ahead, making and proving out and making these long-term deals with these very heavy industry, very established, um, very large companies and work your way slowly up and showing them all the tech and making deals about what the next what the next plant looks like and what it can provide and all the while like trying to make sure that it's hitting their their specifications what is really tricky about that is that you need a lot of funding along the way and in a very like massive amounts of funding along the way so starting there as a company you just know you have to take this very long pathway and we don't have time to solve climate in that way like we need carbon removal solutions that aren't going to come in like 20 years from now and be scalable in 20 years. We need climate solutions that actually start to remove CO2 as soon as possible. So um, basically what we found when we discovered the bio oil sequestration pathway was that we could immediately access the carbon removal or carbon offsets type of market and get funding, not just from our investors, but from the actual marketplace um, in order to scale our tech and that there were people who were willing to invest in that like Stripe and Shopify and Microsoft um, along the way by basically paying a premium for that carbon removal. And so um, ours are much more expensive. Our offsets are much more expensive than other uh, companies. However, they also come with this kind of commitment that we are like trying our like with all everything that we've got to produce more and more of this this bio oil to scale our hardware and to like get down that cost curve as quickly as possible for those customers in like with the expectation that they will support us along the way in doing so and so while these very established markets are like have all of that like under like they're very 
they're understood. There's a process. There's some funding, but it all, all usually very much encompasses a lot of like government um, subsidies and things of that nature. We now have this much more quick market that is able to react and support. And that's that's the carbon removal market that we've been seeing from people who are doing net zero commitments. Um, when it comes to the issues with that being mainstream or the like efficiency of that market, I think that there is still a fundamental problem of like how you value a carbon offset and what the um, quality of that offset is when it comes to permanence. So a lot mm -hmm. of the time they see um, a carbon offset that is ours that's like $600 a ton that is permanent on 10,000 year plus timescales and try to compare that with nature-based solutions that are five to $20 a ton, but might only be permanent on one to hundred year timescales. And so without being able to, to have that conversation in a very objective way, we both know that we want both, but they're, they're fundamentally different, but are constantly being compared. So how does the, the, the market uh, today ensure, or I would say certified, uh, that the quantity of CO2 uh, offset uh, that has been purchased will be, or in your case, have been effectively taken out of the of the air? I mean, can you tell us a bit more about like, what's the, the constraint and like what you guys had to go through to, uh, to certify it and comply to that? Or is it something that's still very, uh, uh, very case by case uh, basis? Yeah, I would say it's very still very case by case basis. The, um, but it's it's kind of on the, it's on the buyer and the the seller of that offset to agree on kind of what that means. And so for us, we there are like certification bodies around, but they're not necessarily like prepared for new technologies like Charm. So we don't just like fit nicely into like the the setup, right? So we can't just be like, oh, here's a, a lot of the times when they do nature-based offsets, it's like they're trying to map it to a satellite, a piece of satellite data with a known location on the globe, right? That's a little bit different for us because they're not going to be able to, to track bio-oil sequestration with satellite data. So the way that is currently done for, for us is that we work with um, several of our customers, well, I think that the main, main players like Stripe and Shopify and Microsoft have their own due diligence and scientific teams that are doing that initial diligence on our product and what we plan to do. And then when we do a delivery, there's an agreed upon showing us the steps of how we, how we got that carbon, how it was processed, and then where it was basically the injection certificates for where that carbon went underground and then making sure that all of the carbon is accounted for on either side of that. And so in an, the initial step, we give every customer an LCA or a life cycle analysis of our process to say like, okay, this is where we expect all of the carbon accounting is. And then we have to follow up on that LCA afterwards, which saying like, okay, this is actually what happened. Um, and so therefore this amount of carbon was removed net after all of all the processing that went into it. Okay, so to, to close this, uh, this section, like, you know, as I was mentioning, like, uh, uh, there's always like some controversy around like carbon offsetting in itself. Uh, so according to you and your, your personal opinion, uh, what is the, the real impact of uh, carbon offsetting on, on climate change? I mean, why does it need to, to exist? Or is it more like a, a buzz or greenwashing uh, tool that, you know, a big emitters uh, can leverage to, to look better? 
Right. I think that it definitely has to exist for the climate, right? We know that in order to achieve the one and a half degree limit, um, they're saying that we need somewhere on the order of five to 20 gigatons um, every year removed. So that's 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 different than reduction and different than decarbonization, but rather like we need to actually go remove um, historical emissions. And so that's why that's why it's like fundamentally important. However, I do think that without the quality conversations, without the like real intense intensive look at um, some of the government subsidies and who's using them, like for right now, we have like one federal in, in the U.S. one federal government subsidy called 45Q that really is only able to be accessed by um, EOR or oil and gas companies. So all of these climate solutions want to access this 45Q can't because we're not, we're like, there's different reasons why we're excluded from the law. So it's like, in that respect, yeah, like the government's doing something, but if it's only aiding oil and gas companies, like, are we really doing anything about it? Um, and so <laughs> it's things like that where you like unless we have a really good agreed upon baseline of language of quality of verification and of like expectation or like understanding of what's actually being utilized in these different uh like efforts towards offsetting then it's going to be hard to evaluate whether or not somebody is just greenwashing or somebody is actually doing something so let's go back to uh, to, to charm uh, industrial and let's go deeper into uh, into the into the story. Um, I mean, what is the, the the story behind it? I mean, and what are the which are the, the gaps uh, that you guys identified uh, at first uh, that in a way led to the to the current version of charm? Um, you know, why charm industrial had to exist in a way? Yeah. So. Uh, my co-founders had some time initially um, looking into what are carbon solutions, what are the most efficient ones, where have there been gaps in the way that traditional climate tech has been attempted that didn't allow them to be successful because there was that whole kind of green energy and like green bubble that existed that just never that popped and never really became climate solutions that we know today and what happened in each of those. So digging deeper into all of those. There was definitely technical hurdles that I think were seen too late. And then there were business hurdles that I think were like insurmountable in the current approach that they had been taking. Um, so that could be from a like scaling perspective and like the costs around it and the slowness of some of the subsidies and the expectations around the subsidies and so on and so forth. So um, initially we decided to go forward with producing biomass or using biomass like plant matter, agricultural waste to produce hydrogen. And then we immediately started a developing a system to do that. So that was kind of um, my job and my co-founder Sean's job. Um, and then while um, Peter, other co-founder was really deep in seeing what the opportunities were on the business side, um, getting the proper funding and getting the um, life cycle analysis that I mentioned really worked out for that process. And so as we dug deeper into it, we really found that biomass, very light and fluffy, very expensive, both from a carbon perspective and a cost perspective to transport. Hydrogen, also light and fluffy, um, not only dangerous to transport, but also cost, like not super cost effective and um, is difficult to transport generally. So then we were like, okay, well, 
we know that we have a problem here with transport on both ends. So what if we eliminated that transport and said, okay, well, we'll put half of our machine, the one that produces bio oil, um, even though we had an end to end machine, we just had this bio oil that was like in between that we had to deal with. And it was really like a tar problem. And that's typical to a lot of the companies who have dealt with biomass is like, there's always a tar problem. We were like, okay, well, this tar problem exists and this transport problem exists. So what if we split it? We embrace the tar problem and we, we design for it and say, instead of it being a tar problem, it's a tar benefit. So we say, in, we'll go to the site of the field where the biomass is. We'll make these small modular units so we can unconstrain our like uh, radius of biomass that is like usually constraining for these big plants and um, process the biomass and into bio oil there. Then we take, and we optimize for the bio oil. We take that bio oil, very heavy, um, much more cost-effective to ship, and we ship that to the plant that produces the hydrogen. And then we don't have to ship the hydrogen. And that's a point of load, great and happy. Um, so that was kind of our first breakthrough. And then our second breakthrough was, um, well, second, like two different breakthroughs kind of combined in this next one. But um, one of them was to go from hydrogen to syngas, which I mentioned earlier, based on the fact that we knew that our purity from bio gasification was never going to be as good as some of these. It, we were going to have trouble competing with electrolysis. Maybe in the future we can. I don't know. But we knew that like syngas was going to be that area. And then my co-founder, Sean, had the revelation that... Um, if we think about carbon removal, not just as CO2 removal, but as pure carbon removal, that this bio oil, which we, we thought had a really high value in its energy content, actually has a higher value of, of its carbon content. And the pyrolysis producer, like the people who have done commercial pyrolysis around the world, a lot in Europe, some in Canada, they've been trying to optimize for bio oil as a fuel. And bio oil is many things it is unstable it is uh, full of random hydrocarbons it and unstable from a perspective of like it likes to solidify so like if you imagine fuel like you don't want it to solidify on you that's like <laughs> not great for your engines and things and so um the the things that we needed for uh, for the bio oil to be a successful fuel we didn't need it all for it to go underground we we actually could embrace some of the problems that bio oil had as being a fuel and instead use them as like an injectant. And so that's where that breakthrough was, was like, how can we harness this for its carbon content? And then going through that pathway, we were like, okay, now we've realized that we have an opportunity here to do permanent carbon removal and all of our applications to stripes, RFPs and things like that, which we were like hydrogen, hydrogen was like, okay, no, this is actually so much better. Like, look at the life cycle analysis, look at what we can do, even on really short timescales. That is really exciting to for climate generally. So wait, speaking about the, the, the biomass, um, I mean, I guess you guys are using the, the you know, waste or side product of the of the agri agricultural, like, uh, uh, you know, process in itself. So uh, is it I mean, your process, your parallels, is it working with any type of biomass? Or do you have like ones that you can say, this is the, the one that uh, works the best? Uh, is there any like, you know, uh, selection that you do there? How do you ensure that in a way is the, is the best one? Is, 
I was wondering, like, if people pay you to use that as well, or to get uh, this biomass out of their field or, or whatever, uh, or maybe what was the the use, the typical use of that biomass before uh, you guys came along? Sure. So um, traditionally, biomass has always been done with wood. Um, it's typically been co-located with um, like sawmills or something like that to utilize excess sawdust. Um, that is wood is great for biomass processing it's like it has very low ash which is the thing that really drives the the complications of the process so low ash means you get a much higher yield um, and it's much more of efficient process but you don't get that luxury when it comes to uh, agricultural waste you get a lot of ash mostly because it's dirt right it's in the soil um and it's in the it's in the plant matter too and so corn stover and wheat straw which we're also using right now um has a much higher ash content so it's not necessarily optimized for the yield or for like the the process efficiency but rather for the fact that it does exist in large quantities and we want to make sure that our machines can handle them so instead of just sticking with wood and knowing that that's the best we do want to be able to process all types of biomass and, and in fact start at some of the hardest ones. So we learn those lessons as soon as possible. Um, so right now we're focused on corn stover because it's even harder than wheat straw in the fact that not only do you have uh, this like straw leafy type of material, which is also a lot different to process than wood, but you also have corn cobs like randomly throughout. <laughs> so you have to deal with all of the, the chaos that comes with the variety of things that you get in a bale of corn um, and then traditionally what it's done like what was used for in the past um, most of the time so you have a lot of excess biomass that will either be burned um, just to remove it um, it could also be um, like left in the field to rot and they usually do leave some in the field um, mm -hmm. in order for to prevent uh, soil erosion and we encourage that and then the remainder is like at times used for animal feed, but it's usually low protein and doesn't really have all those things. So if it does, if there's any scenario in which it would be used for a different purpose other than rotting or basically being returned to the atmosphere, you do have to account, uh, account for that in your LCA. So we're looking typically at agricultural waste that wouldn't be used um, for anything else. And also like forestry waste from forestry, forest thinning operations and all that access things that don't have another use case effectively. And just out of, out of curiosity, when it goes through your process and through the, the digest of so the, the, the pyrolysin itself, so you extract on one side uh, uh, the, the oil, on the other side, I mean, I guess you have some residual like um, dry piece of what, what else comes out and what do you do and how do you deal with that uh, extract after? Yeah, yeah, great question. So the process produces three different things. So it produces the bio oil, which we've been talking about. Yeah. And then it's produced, um, it produces a syngas. So similar mm. to also what we've been discussing, a mixture of gases that can be used for power and for heating. Yeah. And then um, it also produces a biochar, um, which we collect and then hopefully plan to return to the fields for both nutrient and soil carbon. We're not like a, a we're not accounting for that yet in mm -hmm. terms of our like carbon removal because we do believe that there's a little bit more work to be done about soil carbon and how permanent it is. 
and things of that nature. But right now we're just kind of at those early stages of collecting it. Sometimes we'll get it pelleted. Um, some, some systems will actually use it for heat and they'll burn it. Um, we don't currently do that. We're just currently looking into how we can best partner with farmers to do experiments on how it's good for their soil or not, mm -hmm. depending on how this, yeah. So let's move on the on the storage side. I mean, like, uh, how do you define like you know the the, the place where to, where to store it? What is a good you know spot? Uh, because you you guys claim that it's for a million years, it's gonna stay uh, under the ground. So which is pretty exciting. Uh, it reminds me a little bit uh, what uh, Carpfix uh, does uh, back in uh, um, uh, back in um, I think it's like Greenland or something like that. Mm -hmm. I yeah, exactly. So how do you select like the type of, of soil that is suitable for, uh, you know, injecting uh, and how is the process uh, working? Yeah, so um, right now we were kind of looking at what opportunities there were from just like an experimental well perspective, right? Because we are pretty early on in our process and we want to acknowledge that we are still learning about what each of those take and what the impact is and so on. And so the one of the initial targets were these things called start, uh, class five salt caverns. And they were typically used for the strategic oil reserve to store hydrocarbons. And they're basically these massive underground salt um, formations that were, I think, initially solution brand. And then right now what they're finding is that if they're not filled and capped properly, that they'll actually like create sinkholes and things. They're just these voids. So you constantly have to like refill them with like water or soil or something to like make them solid. Um, and so what we are trying to do is basically fill them with bio oil, which eventually, like I mentioned, slightly unstable from a like fuel perspective will just solidify and just like become this like mass inside the, the well. There's then going into other types of formations. We're working with a lot of geologists and the consultants in different areas to figure out what is those, like doing core samples and testing on different types of formations to understand where it's best co-located. Um, and some of the disposal wells, basically we're, we're looking into how we, how we can permit for those wells um, and how, like what is necessary and how what kind of testing you have to do and monitoring, et cetera. And then with the dream of getting to something like a depleted oil and gas well, which we know that around the US, there's just like thousands of these wells that haven't been handled and cleaned up properly. Um, and they're just empty and they're similar formations to any sort of disposal, industrial disposal well. And so, and we know that they've stored um, oil and gas for like, millions of years effectively. And so what we want to do is basically say like, okay, well, in theory, this should be able to store our bio oil in the same levels without getting into aquifers, without penetrating other um, formations. And then we want to have that added benefit of uh, do it capping them and safely sealing them, but also utilizing all the oil infrastructure around the US to like actually just turn it and do it in reverse. And then deploy like basically have opportunities for jobs and for um for the different pieces of infrastructure that would otherwise just be scrapped and put them towards a clean energy like new or clean like new age process that is actually removing carbon as opposed to uh adding to the problem 
So on the, on, the, on the product side, I mean, on the offset uh, offset side in itself, I was looking at um, at your website and uh, I saw that we can directly now uh, purchase some uh, some offset from from you guys. So if you could walk us through a little bit this customer experience, like how does it work, uh, uh, and what are maybe the changes that you uh, you see today? I mean, what keeps you uh, up at night? <laughs> What keeps me up at night and how the customers that those two questions are like so materially different for me, but we'll start, let's start from the one. let's start from the top one, the, the first one, <laughs> and then let's uh, let's definitely move on into the uh, what keeps you up at night. I mean, we can take that one for later on. In the, I got in the both. Yeah, we got this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, all right. So customer experience. So we basically have a way to subscribe or just buy a purchase of our bio oil um, after you sign up, you can basically do a little bit of a um, sizing of how much you would want to spend. We know that we're more expensive. So for a given individual that might be um, just like you can't necessarily do unless you're willing to spend um, a, a more money than average on your, your offsets. You don't really get to do the same thing where you like measure your tonnage and then you buy your tonnage because that's very expensive. So mm -hmm. sometimes people just choose to buy on a tonnage basis or something, or they'll like, they'll effectively just do a recurring thing where they want to like support in some way. And then once that happens, there's some contracting. We can kind of give you an, an example of a delivery date that would be feasible for us. Um, and then once you, that carbon is put underground, you're basically like notified of, of that process. And depending on the amount that you, um, that you choose to buy, you'll get some amount of the due diligence behind showing where that, that carbon is. You'll get at least a certificate that says that it was injected. But um, some of our bigger customers require a little bit more of the depth of technical diligence on that. So that's typically how it goes. So let's cover a little bit um, uh, the economics and I would say the expected economics of uh, Charm Industrial and which is very exciting is as you mentioned at the beginning of the interview you guys uh, are also like in a way you know your clients uh, all of those uh, uh, at least those three big names that you mentioned prior are paying the premium to uh, in a way uh, finance your growth uh, besides the, the venture capitalists on the on the other side so what is the the at term i would say in the next uh, three, five years, maybe 10 years, like the, the, the business model that you see with, uh, with Charm Industrial and what are the maybe financial projections that you guys already uh, put on the, on, on the whiteboard uh, if everything goes uh, according to plan? Yeah, I think it really matters about our ability to scale the pyrolyzers effectively. And so right now we're kind of in that, that sweet spot, or well, Swedish, maybe not sweet, bittersweet spot of um we want to do more we know there's demand for some carbon removal um but we also need to scale our pyrolyzers and we that can only happen on like on timelines that hardware can be developed within you know what i mean so it's we're trying to the vision of charm we right now have these like small pyrolyzers that are about shipping container size that go on the side of the field we really want to develop something that is looks more like a combine harvester or a tractor that goes on the field picks up the material in the windrow so before it gets bailed um, and produces bio oil on board and that is something that we want to be able to we know that assembly lines have been made for these machines we want to see, we want to like follow that process and right now it's 
much more of that packaging into a shipping container, bringing that shipping container to a farm and processing the bio oil um, in like an operational way. And so uh, to be able to scale that, we need some time um, and we need some commitment across the board from a lot of these, these companies or investors that they're on board with um, that, that process. But there is still that hesitancy around the size of the voluntary carbon markets, right? And so we don't know unless we can get some of those um, like purchases on really long timescales, that long offtake effectively over the next decade to say that we we have the customers who will buy it. So like now we can go put in that investment to that hardware. And so it's a bit of a balancing act with like trying to figure out how fast you should move on hardware, how much money and burn you should put into that in comparison with what you know to be available from a market and business perspective. And so what we'd like to do is get like immediately to scaling the pyrolyzers over the next few years and be able to like constantly triple or double our, our offsets every year. Um, but we also need to make sure that we can pair that with investment, proper investment at the right price points, uh, proper deals from different companies that like show that commitment over the long term, and um, and then also prove from a technical side that, that that's feasible. Mm. So just to, to conclude on the, on that aspect, you mentioned that, uh, you're around like $600 a ton for, uh, carbon offset. Um, so what is at scale when all of those steps that you mentioned are, um, achieved in a way, how, how, how low can you go? You think, um, this is based on our like a lot of assumptions, but we're hoping to get down to like that $50 per ton um, range to be cost competitive with some of the nature based offsets. Um, it depends on unlocking a lot of regulatory markets as well. So um, basically, or if unless unless the carbon removal, like voluntary carbon removal space becomes a lot bigger or the incentives become a lot bigger for customers to offset, then we would also need that kind of regulatory like oh there are, there is a cap or a cost of carbon and they have to offset it in some way to, to grow that market and then we're also hoping eventually to be cost competitive with natural gas which unlocks much more of that decarbonization opportunity from steel and other heavy industries um so that's on the order of like many more pyrolyzers right like the pyrolyzers would have to become that like that would that commodity that like consumer product that a farmer can own with some investment you know um, and sell the oil back to us or to the other things and uh, then it would hope to yeah be able to get down to that like fifty dollars per ton range okay so let's go now to a more personal question uh, I'd like to get your your personal opinion as I ask always during the during the show about the, the climate crisis I mean what would you you know, what would be your words to, to people who are like afraid of all the terrible news and already visible consequences of, uh, of climate change? I mean, as I always say, are we doomed? Uh, or what would you tell them? Um, I'd like to not live in a world where I feel doomed by the climate crisis. Um, I do think that we need a warlike effort to fix it, however. So, like just me in an office in San Francisco and like my team and a couple of other, the small carbon companies, like 
that's not going to be it. We need that like silver buckshot as opposed to the silver bullet. We need several solutions. We need a huge, massive um, push for um, electrification and for the decarbonization of heavy industry and like moving away from from oil and gas into renewables. And I think the pressure needs to be on to basically we, we should not get jaded by the fact that we don't necessarily feel that momentum yet. And rather like that should encourage us to push harder on our representatives and on our governments and and then also to encourage others to get into the space and know that there is a there's an, uh, a job for you here, regardless of your background, um, in order to to tackle this crisis. So I do think that while I'm not I don't think we're doomed, I also think that it needs a much ma- a more massive effort than we're currently giving it. So how can the, the community of uh, listeners uh, around the world can uh, can help you today? Sorry, can you say that again? How can the community of uh, you know entrepreneurs, founders, investors listening to the show can help you today? I would say that yeah, like encouraging everyone to keep the pressure on government in a very like productive and um, like useful way, as opposed to just thinking about it. Like re- require that they kind of meet the actual needs of some of the things that we're doing. Right, we know that. There's been a lot of high level talk, but not a lot of low level or like actual action on the part of expanding um, different like pieces of our infrastructure around the world, um, putting money not just towards like the concept of these grants or these like long term projects, but really like putting money in the hands of people who can deploy it in really productive ways and then holding accountable a lot of these other um, like types of laws or like types of offsets that we might be thinking are producing useful offsets for us, but not actually doing much when it comes to removing carbon. And so putting that pressure on learning about what they can do in their different spaces of industry and considering a a move into the climate space to to help the cause of, of removing carbon generally. So any question that I did not ask you that I should have for this first part of the interview? Um, hmm. let's see, well, we're hiring, I guess that's towards the, <laughs> towards the end of that. Like, so if anyone um, has a skill set, Charm is hiring actively and aggressively to try to scale our processes. So, um, I encourage people to check that out if they, um, if they're interested and also just like maybe their skill sets might be applicable in ways they don't initially anticipate. Thank you so much, Kelly, for, for your time and your uh, incredible uh, insight uh, on the industry. Uh, I'm so excited to see you know, so many uh, brilliant people like you uh, putting so much effort to, uh, towards a, a better and cleaner, cleaner world. So thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you for having me. It was great talking with you. Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climate tech ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupbasecamp.org to discover more episodes like this one and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. 
and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.